is Our American Stories, and it's time for a story from one of our favorite contributors, Herb London. He's brought us his tribute to his father, Yonkel, for our Final Thought series, and also his tribute to his two boyhood heroes and role models, Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio. And his latest is a reflection on the game of baseball at the beginning of the baseball season. It may be hard for youngsters to believe But a generation ago, baseball was America's favorite game. I grew up memorizing baseball statistics and taking the baseball encyclopedia to the bathroom as a ritual. Compared to basketball and football, baseball is in the doldrums. The free zone that accompanies a LeBron James dunk and the rock'em sock'em features of football appeals to young people weaned on television excitement. The opening of the baseball season on the heels of March Madness is like a cooling down period a moment for reflection rather than exhilaration. For baseball, as opposed to basketball, is a hot, lazy day in the sun when rhythms of life slow down. For the thrill-seeking generation next, baseball lost its status as the national game because Americans want instant gratification and the latest thrills at their athletic contests. Baseball gives its fans a different kind of experience, one in which discussion at the game is encouraged, During the lapses in activity between pitches and every half inning, people in the stands talk. Rarely do fans talk at a basketball game. There isn't an opportunity to do so. Recently, I went to a spring training game in Fort Myers, Florida, home of the Minnesota Twins. The game was played in a double-A stadium, which stands on top of the field. Octogenarians who have fond memories of baseball's glory days have retired to Florida and sell tickets and flip hamburgers. It is charming to see these retirees wait eagerly for an autograph of Paul Molotar, Hall of Famer. At the beginning of the game, local retirement centers are honored. I overheard heated conversations about players of yesteryear. Was Eddie Matthews a better third baseman than Harmon Killebrew? Baseball is a game for those with a memory. In the twilight of one's life, it is a sport easy to digest. One's memory for bank accounts and investments may fade, but baseball lives as an indelible mark. Unfortunately, the modern baseball game is not what it once was. It doesn't help that stadiums are mammoth and largely homogeneous. The friendly environs of Tippett's Field have not been duplicated, even at Jacobs Field, the much-acclaimed Cleveland Indians stadium. Players today, even when exceptional, don't have the personalities of the game's earlier heroes, such as Willie Mays, the Say Hey Kid. Ted Williams, the splendid splinter, and Jolton Joe DiMaggio. The baseball has adopted its own version of trash-talking, once monopolized by basketball players. And some baseball players do a dance around home plate when they hit a home run. These recent practices detract from the game and undermine the gentility, once uniquely associated with baseball. Baseball owners are often foolish and greedy and can certainly learn lessons from the owners of the National Football League. Baseball has sought gimmicks like Bat Day to sell the game. Kids don't see much baseball on television because of the dominance of night games and as a consequence usually do not share the enthusiasm for baseball I enjoyed as a child. Yet with all of these caveats, with all of the flaws that accompany the game, when April arrives and umpires shout, play ball, I still get a rush of anticipation. The ball is probably juiced and pitching talent is diluted through expansion but the thought that the Chicago Cubs might duplicate its World Series victory after being in the wilderness for 108 years 
or that the Cleveland Indians might ascend to the big dance in October is bound to give this upcoming season special meaning. And thank you, Herb, for that great report. And now it's time for one of our favorite contributors. And it's a very different kind of contributor. Stephen Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams, and not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College in New York and was the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who daydreams a lot. And we now bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before it, Steve reads to us what he calls his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. I am at a dinner with my wife and about 10 other people, all very religious. We are beginning uh, the dinner, at the beginning of dinner, a minister looks uh, at me and says, clearly giving uh, me a great honor, that uh, he would be most pleased if I would say grace. My wife blanched, suspecting that I had never heard grace uh, said, and certain that I uh, have never um, said grace. I myself am not exactly sanguine about the situation, never having been religious by any definition of the term. But with no way out, I am certain that humiliation is the only possible outcome, uh, and I resign myself to biting the bullet. So I say... Thank you, dear Lord, for giving us food when so many are hungry, drink when so many are thirsty, and friends when so many are lonely. Amen. The others seem to be satisfied. And by the way, that was beautiful, Stephen. Beautiful, perfect, short and sweet. I'm a Christian who really sometimes can't believe how long people can go on, A, a little bit jealous, and B, a little bit impatient because I'm getting hungry. This is Our American Stories, two of our favorite contributors in one segment. Herb London, a New Yorker, and Steve Goldberg, a New Yorker. And that's the thing about this show. You hear all walks of life, every accent in the world. By the way, go to our Shiloh segment, and you'll hear a great Alabaman voice, the great Winston Groom, the author of... You bet. You know the show. What's the movie? Farce Gump. And, of course, the... Great nonfiction, I think one of the great nonfiction works on war, Shiloh. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to check out that and all that we do. This is Our American Stories, the American voices from all over this great country.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this show, we talk about everything. History, sports, arts and entertainment, and my goodness, we even do some really some remarkable stories about music. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. It's all there, and you can get it on iTunes. You can stream it. You can get it any way you like. And now that brings us to our favorite show. We have two TV shows we track because they're so quintessentially American, and you may not have time to see them. So we filter through the best episodes and bring them to you once a week. And those two shows are Shark Tank and Judge Judy. And the best case of the week on Judge Judy this past week was the judge phoning the father. Let's take a listen to the case. 23-year-old Kenneth Kip Panette is suing his former friend, Stacy Schwartz, for taking his car without permission and damaging the transmission, the clutch, and one of the tires. And here's Judge Judy. Mr. Panette, you were at a party with the defendant. I assume she was a friend of yours, and it is your claim that she took your car without permission and wrecked it. She didn't wreck it. She hit a curb and blew out a tire, and uh, the transmission went out. And Ms. Swartz says that she had an unfortunate accident and that she might clearly be responsible for replacing a tire, but certainly not the transmission, since she had your permission and this accident was clearly not her fault. Well, she did not have my permission. Good. So let's go back. When was this party that you had? Um, a couple of months ago. It was a Friday night. It was at my house. And I... Give me the, listen, Mr. Panette, how old are you, sir? 23. What do you do for a living? I am a market analyst. Ever been to court before, sir? No, except for traffic tickets and... Well, that's court. So, if you're a plaintiff and you have a claim, first thing you figure out is what date. Yes, Your Honor. Because the questions get harder after that, Mr. Panette. So, a couple of months ago on a Friday night isn't a date. I believe the date was... December 14th, Your Honor. That's a date. Now, it was on December 14th, 2006. Where were you? At my house. Who else was there? I don't know the exact names, but a bunch of my friends. And what were you all doing? Drinking, watching TV, listening to music. Great. Having a good time. Being responsible. Yes. What happened next? Um, Well, I didn't keep track of everybody around that night. Uh, I went to bed maybe around 1 or 2, and the next morning, Stacy called me and said that uh, my car was broken down. I said, you know, how could that be? It should be in front of my house. And she said she was in Sunrise, which is about 20 miles away. Where do you live? Downtown Sacramento. Go ahead. Uh, She said it was broken down. She explained to me that she had taken my car the night before and that it had broken down the night before and that she had spent the night and uh, was calling me in the morning. And I was... Spent the night where? at one of her friend's house, I assume. Okay. And uh, I explained to her that she had better get my car back to me. What kind of car do you have? It's a Nissan Sentra. Year? 1997. And uh, she said she would. Uh, we exchanged words. I was a little upset, and then I fell back asleep. Um, I didn't get my car back until the next day. She had it towed back to my house. At first, she hadn't even told me that, that a tire had blown out. I did see that for myself when it came to my house. Then she explained that to me. I had not given her permission to drive the car, so you I was very any, upset. Don't, don't, I... Okay. Don't repeat anything. Okay. I have other things to do. Are you finished? Uh, she had told me that she would pay for all damages. She was very apologetic at first, and I felt, you know, like I would forgive her. I had it diagnosed, and uh, she refused to pay it. She said she's you not had a di- I mean, you had it diagnosed. What was the bill? Um, it was $1,593.83. No, I'd originally said $1,600. It's uh, I'd rounded when I looked at the receipt. It's actually $6.17 less than that. Mr. Panette, mm-hmm. how did you pay for this? Uh, my father loaned me the money to pay for it, actually. Did you pay for it in check or cash, sir? Uh, I believe my father used his credit card to pay for it, and I had to pay my father back. What's your father's name? John Panette. His phone number? Uh, I, it's in my cell phone. I'm sorry. 
Goldberg, would you please get his cell phone so that we can get the father's number, please? Thank you. And he's going to verify that he paid this bill, sir? Yes, When I call would. him on the phone? Good. We're going to do that okay. in a minute. Okay. And now let's hear the girl's story. Now, I'll hear you, Miss Swartz. Um, on December 14th, I was hanging out at Kip's house, and I asked him if I could borrow his car to go over to Jessica's house. Where does Jessica live? A few blocks from his house. And he said? He said yes. He let me borrow it. Good. So you understand, Miss Swartz, That's that a different place than she was. Excuse me, Your Honor. You do understand, madam, that you did have limited authority to take his car to go to Jessica's house, which is a few blocks away. You understand that? Yes. Okay. Now tell me what happened. Um, I drove over to Jessica's house and told her that I was using Kip's car. And she called me at 5 o'clock in the morning and woke me up. At Jessica's house? Yes. And told me she was drunk and stranded in Sunrise. So I didn't even think to call Kip and ask permission because he let me borrow his car. He knew I wasn't... No, 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 my dear. He knew I wasn't going to bring it back until the morning. So I... Darling! Yes, you get it now? You look as if you're smart enough to get where I'm going. Yes, ma'am. You went to pick up your friend in Sunrise. And yes. how far is Sunrise from Jessica's house? Approximately 20 miles. 20? Miles. Miles, not blocks. Miles. And it was coming back with her, this drunken friend of yours, that you had the accident. Yes. Let's hear about the accident. Now, tell me about the accident. Um, I was just driving, and I was coasting, so I was in neutral. And then I tried to put it into gear, and it would not go into gear. And I went to park immediately, and I hit the curb and popped the tire. Um, that was probably about 5.30, 6 o'clock. You must have hit the curb very hard. Well, yes, it was hard enough to pop the tire. And I immediately changed the tire. And since it was about 5.30 in the morning, my friend that I picked up just walked to her house because we were about a block away. And I slept in the car and called Kip about 9 o'clock in the morning to tell him that I was going to get his car towed back to him. Let us assume that I believe you, that Mr. Panette said that you could borrow his car to go to Jessica's house, which is a few blocks away, to yes. stay over. When you exceeded his permission by going 20 miles away the next day, you no longer had his permission. Do you understand that? But he knew I was going to have it till the morning. Don't tell me what he knew. He gave you permission, according to you, to drive it a few blocks. A few blocks is not 20 miles. I have my witness here that saw him give me permission. I just said, don't you have your listening ears on? I said, if I believe you, he gave you permission to take it a few blocks away. Once you took it 20 miles away, you no longer had permission. Your Honor, he lets me borrow the car all the time. That's not so, true. Just a second. Where do you think you are? Right here. Where is here? In this witness chair. And until you stand up there, what are you supposed to do? Listen to you. Right. Once you exceeded the scope of the permission, you no longer had permission. That's the law. Do you understand it? Yes. So all I have to do is deal with the issue of damages. And for that, you're going to give me John's cell phone. Yes, ma'am. Just let me power it up. Power it up. <laughs> now let's listen in as Judge Judy speaks with the 23-year-old car owner's daddy. John Panette, this is Judge Judy Scheindlin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Do you have a moment for just a couple of quick questions for me? I'm here, as you know, trying a case involving your son and this young woman who took his car without permission. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Did he ever ask you for any money to help him repair this car? When was that? 
three months ago. Do you remember how much it cost you, sir? Approximately. And did you use your credit card? Did he pay you back that money? <laughs> I know, I have children. Did he tell you how it happened? Did he need a new transmission? Was he driving the car? Okay. Very good. And you used a credit card. Okay, great. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate you taking the time. Bye-bye now. Let's find out what the father said to Judge Judy. What a nice father you have, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. And as a matter of fact, your father does remember helping you out and paying for this transmission a few months ago. That's correct. Do you know what he doesn't remember? What? He doesn't remember you paying him back. Well, I owe him money pretty much all the time, and I am always paying him. So but, but, I'm but that, in the he, that he doesn't remember. I mean, he does remember laying this money out for you, but he doesn't remember the fact that you paid him. I have not fully paid him back, Your Honor. I apologize. Well, how much have you paid him, sir? Uh, well, I owe him a total of quite a bit more than that. So I guess if you got down to that bill, I haven't paid him any because I'm paying him for things that I owe him. Well, you have no objection to making the check payable to your father, do you? No, not Perfect. at all. Good. Judging for the plaintiff in the amount of $1,593.83 to be made payable to John Annette. Thank you very much. That's all. <laughs> and that's why everybody loves Judge Judy. And she's talking to the dad and says, did he pay you back? And there's this silence and she's laughing and she says, I know how that works. I have children. <laughs> so funny. And I love the part where Mr. Panette, the 23-year-old, is asked, what's the date? And he doesn't remember. And she says, the questions get harder after this, Mr. Panette. Judge Judy, we love talking about her show because, by the way, her show is about so many things. There's a moral universe when you enter the court of Judge Judy, and she just always gets it right. She just does, and she calls out people's BS like only someone from Queens can. And that's why we do this and Shark Tank. Every week, once a week, this is Lee Habib, Judge Judy, Mr. Panette, boy, and dad, their stories here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Cult of Ernesto Che Guevara is an episode in the moral callousness of our time. He was killed on this day in history in 1967, and as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their remarkable free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. We kick off our story on Che with a performance from the television talent show Star Academy. As a giant flag of Che waves in the background, the singers and background dancers wear the Che Communist Beret and sing an ode to their hero they call Until Forever Commander. The chorus sounds like something that would be sung to a North Korean dictator. Here lies the clear the dear transparency of your beloved presence, Commander Che Guevara. 
Before there was Oprah, Madonna, or Bono, there was Che. Type Che Guevara into eBay and you get a staggering 33,000 results. From flags to iPhone cases, cigarette lighters, and perhaps most brilliantly of all, wallets. Of course, there is also the t-shirt. Thousands of them. Go to any protest, rock concert, or college campus, and you're bound to see the image of the socialist heartthrob in a beret, silk-screened on the front of a t-shirt. Che's image is one of popular culture's greatest ironies, that a photograph of someone who gave up his life for communism is now a quintessential capitalist brand. And irony upon irony, the man whose propaganda machine set the Che myth in motion is none other than the former Cuban president, Fidel Castro. How did Che Guevara, the communist terrorist revolutionary who murdered hungry children and became an icon around the world for his role in the 1959 communist takeover of Cuba, end up becoming the most commercial image in the world? Let's find out from Humberto Fontova. Humberto was seven years old when his family fled the Fidel and Che-led takeover of Cuba in 1961. He now lives in the United States and holds a master's degree in Latin American studies and has written books on both Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. I asked him to uncover how the Che legend and especially the origins of the Che t-shirt began. Well, the astounding thing about Che Guevara is how a complete and utter failure in everything he attempted in life could have become so famous. Castro himself said, propaganda is at the heart of our struggle. Che Guevara himself, in his diaries, said, much more important than guerrilla recruits were American media recruits to export our propaganda. There it is. But the Che Guevara phenomenon started after he was dead. That's when that picture was cropped and dusted off. As his former comrades would have told you, Fidel Castro only praised the dead. Fidel's historical revisionism of Che and his use of Che's image have been swallowed by useful idiots, the name Stalin gave to foolish Westerners who parroted his lies about communism's success. Che was the architect of Cuba's forced labor camps, which by 1965 were transformed into concentration camps for dissidents, homosexuals, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Cubans of other religious sects. Anyone who refused to think, speak, and act in accordance with the Communist Party line was an affront to Che. This explains why the United States was his primary object of hate. In fact, he hoped to start a third world war. Here again is Humberto Fantova. Yeah, it was shortly after the missile crisis that uh, he thought he was talking off the record to the London Daily Worker. And he said, if the missiles had remained in Cuba, we would have fired them against the heart of the United States, including New York City. This was in November of 1962. And here's what happened November of that year again. 
J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uncovered a plot in Manhattan. Here were the targets. Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Gimbel's, and Grand Central Terminal. 500 kilos of TNT were to be set off in them. The date was going to be the day after Thanksgiving of 1962. The day of the Macy's Day Parade. Macy's by itself gets 50,000 shoppers on that one day, or did so back in 1962. Jagger Hoover's FBI had infiltrated the plot. They rounded up the plotters. And so here was Che Guevara planning to blow up Manhattan. If Che's terrorist plot on New York City would have not been stopped, it would have made 9-11 the second worst terrorist attack on the United States. Che's image has been sold on products by companies including Taco Bell, Gap, Urban Outfitters, Vans, and Louis Vuitton. But the most widespread of all is the humble t-shirt, worn by the likes of Prince Harry, Madonna, Carlos Santana, the band Rage Against the Machine, Johnny Depp, and Jay-Z who raps, I'm like Che Guevara with bling on. I'm like Che Guevara with bling on, I'm complex. The TV show South Park and The Simpsons have both lampooned Che t-shirt wearers. Here's the South Park episode where 10-year-old Kyle starts wearing a Che t-shirt and attends a music festival after trying to sell magazines to a group of Che-loving hippies. Oh, wow. You guys shouldn't be doing that. Don't you know what you're doing to the world? Well, what do you mean? You're playing into the corporate game. See, the corporations are trying to turn you into little Eichmanns so that they can make money. Who are the corporations? The corporations run the entire world, and now they've fooled you into working for them. Are you serious? We never heard that. We just spent our first semester at college. Our professors opened our eyes. The government is using its corporate ties to make you sell magazines so they can get rich. Well, well what do we do? Just hang with us for a bit. We'll fill you in on everything you haven't been told. Wow, this band is so crunchy. Dude, I need more weed. So it seems like we have enough people now. When do we start taking down the corporations? Yeah, man, the corporations. Right now they're raping the world for money. Yeah, so where are they? Let's go get them. Right now we're proving we don't need corporations. We don't need money. This can become a commune where everyone just helps each other. Yeah, we'll have one guy who, like, who like makes bread. And one guy who, like, looks out for other people's safety. You mean like a baker and a cop? No, no, can't you imagine a place where people live together and, like, provide services for each other in exchange for their services? Yeah, it's called a town. You kids just haven't been to college yet. But just you wait. This thing is about to get huge. Hollywood has advanced the Che myth with movies like Robert Redford's Motorcycle Diaries and Academy Award-winning director Steven Soderbergh's two-part biopic starring the incredibly gifted actor Benicio Del Toro as Che. Here's a clip. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity, of justice and truth. The irony is that Che jailed or exiled most of Cuba's best writers, poets, musicians, and filmmakers. He detested long hair, lazy youths, rebellion, freedom, and independence. 
he declared that individualism must disappear. And when we come back, more on Che Guevara. This is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we return to the question, how did the Che Guevara t-shirt become such an American and worldwide phenomenon? Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story. Here again is Humberto Fantova. So you had forced labor camps, and those were the ones that the youth, the long-haired youth, went to. That's another one of the fantastic ironies of this is, is that the co-founder of the only regime in modern history to have actually outlawed rock music and actually persecuted, punished, and tortured rock music listeners is Che Guevara. Because here's what happened, think about it. Kids were trying to listen to the Beatles, Beatles and Rolling Stones music and so forth was outlawed in Cuba. So you'd have places like public parks and so forth where young kids would get together and who were trying to grow their hair long and, you know, they'd have uh, trying to listen to the music under transistors uh, from the U.S. trying to get you at stations to listen to the Beatles and the Stones and so forth. Well, military trucks would just show up and surround the area and simply round everybody there. Imagine a... Uh, a Woodstock 3 or Lollapalooza surrounded by uh, National Guard trucks who round up everybody there with billy clubs and whips and send them to a forced labor camp. And then imagine the groups who played at Lollapalooza or Woodstock wearing t-shirts and hailing the people who ordered the roundup. <laughs> That's essentially what you have in the case of Cuba and Che Guevara. When Paquito de Riviera met Che, he recalls how hostile Che was towards his dream of becoming a musician. It was the moment he knew he had to leave Cuba. Here's de Riviera. Che was an inspiration for me because ever since I thought I had to get out of this island as soon as I can, because I am in the wrong place at the wrong time. D. Riviera did escape Cuba. He's won 12 Grammy Awards since his arrival to America, playing the music Che tried to silence. Here's jazz legend Dizzy Gillespie introducing Paquito D. Riviera. And now we'd like to introduce a young man who has become a grandmaster in this Native American art form. Only he is from the island of Cuba. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure now to introduce Mr. Paquito de Rivera. Chase's symbol of rebellion actually enforced conformity at the point of a gun. Literally. Here's how Humberto Fantova feels about guitarist Carlos Santana 
whose musical signatures is one of the world's best known. Ladies and gents, turn up the sound system to the sound of Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana thought he was the coolest, sharpest guy in the world while pridefully showing off the emblem of a regime that made it a criminal offense to listen to Carlos Santana music. See, you can make a movie out of Che, and I wish somebody would, but it would have to be something along the lines of a Marx Brothers movie, or a Peter Sellers movie, or a Monty Python movie. You can have a lot of fun because of the absolute idiocies that people who admire him pull off. D. Riviera also wrote an open letter to Santana after his Oscar performance in which the musician wore a Che shirt under a huge cross necklace. Here's D. Riviera. That is like entering a synagogue with a swastika on your, on your, on your chest. That doesn't make any sense. He hate artists. So how is possible that artists still today support uh, the image of Che Guevara? Just the sight of a Nazi swastika fills us with dread, and for good reason. Adolf Hitler is one of the world's most notorious mass murderers. That's why the U.S. and British tabloids unloaded on Prince Harry when he wore a Nazi uniform to a costume party. But when the prince hit the town in a chase shirt, the press yawned. We're rightly horrified by fascist murderers. Why aren't we also horrified by communist killers? Calculating communist torture and death tolls can be a daunting challenge, but one taken on by Harvard University Press's Black Book of Communism. The book's authors, themselves former communists, estimate that Che established labor camps executed what would be equivalent of over three million executions in the United States. Here's Humberto Vantova. We're talking about a regime that jailed and tortured at a higher rate than Stalin and that murdered more political prisoners in its first three years in power than Hitler's regime murdered in its first six years of power. And that's an absolute number. Cuba is only a nation of 6.4 million people in 1960, 59 when Che Castro. And we don't know, though, according to the Black Book of Communism, 16,000 ended up getting murdered. Uh, during the course, mostly during the early 60s, the total body count for the Cuban Revolution, and for this we have to include those who died trying to escape Cuba, came to about 100,000, according to an outfit known as the Cuba Archive, which has done a, just a superb job trying to catalog all of the deaths associated with the Cuban Revolution, the firing squads, the forced labor camps, beatings to death, in prisons and people who have died trying to escape and it's important to include those who died trying to escape because folks about two to three hundred germans died overall trying to escape east germany the estimates of the number of cubans that have died trying to escape the regime co-founded by che guevara and fidel castro runs from about twenty five thousand to forty five thousand have died and horribly there were machine gun while trying to escape 
They were ripped apart by sharks. They died of starvation, of dehydration, horrible deaths trying to escape Cuba. And what makes this most significant is that prior to the Castro Chair Revolution, Cuba took in more immigrants in the early part of the 20th century than did the United States. And this was including the Ellis Island years, and most of these immigrants came from Europe. In other words, people used to be as desperate to enter Cuba pre-Castro and Shea as it became desperate to escape Cuba post-Castro and Shea. If you think the Hitler-Stalin-Shea death comparison is hard to believe, try imagining this. Che would sign off his letters as Stalin II. In 2012, the multinational clothing corporation Urban Outfitters stopped carrying their Che-fronted merchandise after an open letter on behalf of the Human Rights Foundation called their attention to his bloody and anti-democratic legacy, namely that he represents tyranny and repression for the millions of people who have suffered under communism. Target recently pulled their 24-CD carrying case decorated with the image of Che Guevara after intense customer backlash. One customer remarked, What's next? Pol Pot pajamas? Currently, Walmart stands alone with several pages of Che Guevara merchandise for sale on its website. One of the posters for sale features this propaganda quote by the sadistic torturer. Let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous, that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. Investors Business Daily lamented in an editorial that all this reflects an indifference to history. It is customary for followers of a cult not to know the real-life story of their hero, the historical truth. Young Argentines have come up with an expression for this cultural phenomenon that rhymes perfectly in Spanish. I have a Che t-shirt, and I don't know why. Che's cult status among disaffected youth and others unhappy with the state of the world has endured, with Che's well-documented reputation for brutality overlooked. In the end, ignorance, of course, accounts for much of the Che myth. But myth can tell you as much about an era as truth. And so it is that thanks to Che's own testimonials, his thoughts, and his deeds, and thanks also to his premature departure, we know exactly how deluded so many of our contemporaries are about so much. The only question is whether Che fans are too ignorant to realize they've been duped, or too anti-American to care. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And there you have it. Great job as always, Greg. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? A story wrapped around a question, Che Guevara's story, which affects so many people who have kids at college campuses and see that image. Well, now you have a story to tell those young people, a story to share. Che Guevara's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers segment. And in the past, we featured the life of Fred Smith, building FedEx from nothing into, well, something. And Bernie Marcus, a kind supporter of this show, and he and a couple of his friends built Home Depot from scratch and wrote a book called Built from Scratch. And we love entrepreneur stories. We even did Mario Andretti, an hour on him and his life, because my goodness, what a life it was. And it was an entrepreneur's story because he owned a, a racing car uh, company, ultimately, and employed a lot of people. And joining us today, we love to do small businesses, mid-sized businesses. It's quite a story. Joining us today is Don Lafriti. We're going to start from the beginning. Don owns now 77 restaurants in Arizona, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. But she grew up in humble beginnings And Dawn, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Now, before we get into the business story, Dawn, we always start, no matter who we talk to here on this show, with the the childhood, the parents, the location, uh, the early life. uh, And talk talk to us about your, your parents and where you grew up and the circumstances under which you grew up. So I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, and uh, my father was not much of a provider. My mother always was providing for the family. My father just wasn't uh, the perfect human being. So my mom worked long hours to feed us, put a roof over our head. But I started working at a very young age, babysitting, taking odd jobs, anything I could to make a few bucks. And I always had the pressure um, as a child as to wondering if the bills were going to be paid, if there was enough food on the table, if we were going to make ends meet. And I remember thinking as a, as a young girl, you know, one day I just want to own my own company so I don't have to worry about this. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. So I always knew that working was something I was going to have to do. I wasn't going to get married and have babies and have a husband. I was going to work and I was going to make my way in the world. And so when I turned 16... I got a job uh, at Taco Bell, right around the corner where I could walk, and I saved up enough money to get a car so that I could get a job at Denny's. And at the time, my mother was a district manager for Denny's, and I just felt that it would be a great stepping stone for me. I could waitress. I could earn tips. So that's what I did. I got a job. I was a hostess. I saw that waitresses were making a lot more money. And I begged and I begged and I begged to be a waitress. And I was pretty young. I was 16 and a half at the time. And the manager would say to me, no, we need you as a hostess. You're such a great hostess. We can't make you a waitress. And I just pressed on him until he finally gave me the chance. And I became the best waitress he had had. I made a lot of money in tips. I saved them all uh, in hopes of buying my own business one day, of which I didn't know at the time what it would be. And back in the early 80s, uh, Denny's bought a chain of restaurants called Hobo Joe's and Colony Kitchens. And there was one restaurant in Globe, Arizona. It was a tiny little mining town about 80 miles east of Phoenix. Um, And they had a restaurant there that they didn't want to convert to a Denny's. And a manager friend of mine and I, we got wind of this store, and we ended up buying it off of very little savings credit cards. We took every penny we could off credit cards. We went and we applied 5000 here, 5000 there, bought our first restaurant off credit cards, did well with it. And then in 1984, oil went bust in West Texas. 
and Denny's corporate called and said, we have four dog stores. Would you like to take a shot at them? <laughs> and that was really, I think, the big moment in, you know, realizing, you know, I'm, I'm going to be my, my own business owner. I, I was, you know, with the first restaurant in Arizona, but there was something bigger about this. This was I was moving my life. Um, this was a, this was four restaurants at once, yep. and it, it was a very exciting time. Although you take a girl from Orange County, California, and you put her in Midland, Texas, <laughs> and there's a little bit of a culture shock and a huge learning curve. Oh my goodness! And I know Midland well. I've been there many times. It's uh, it's the heart of the oil patch. It's the Permian Basin, and right now they've got some of the biggest oil finds in world history there. But when gas prices go down. Oh, my goodness. Right. So it's feast or famine. It is feast or famine. And even the most rambunctious multimillionaire oil man doesn't look like the same man uh, when oil prices are down, Don. Well, it's it really something. True. It's so true. And it, even to this day, you know, I've, I've uh, been in West Texas for 30 years now. When oil's booming, I can't even get somebody to wash my windows because... They're working the oil fields or mow my grass. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting city how you do business there, and you either have tons and tons of business and not enough help, or tons of help and not enough business. Right. And and the great thing about starting out in West Texas is I learned how to survive. Oh my goodness, Don! Everyone should start. It's the equivalent in West Texas because it's the equivalent of uh, Paris Island. It's like boot camp for an entrepreneur. You know, it really is. And I remember being young. I was I was very young when I started out there, and I would work seventeen hours a day just to be able to make ends meet. And it really taught me a lot. And, and the biggest thing it taught me is there's always going to be a rainy day. You know, there's always going to be a time when sales aren't where they should be or when costs are higher than they should be. And it really prepped me for what was to come later down in my career. Well, let's hold that thought. And when we come back on the other side, I'm going to back up just a little bit. I want to ask about what you learned working at such a young age. Very often on this show, one of the recurring themes is why we aren't having our kids working younger. So many kids aren't learning. They're learning a lot of things, but they're not necessarily learning how to put in a hard day's work. Well, I have a lot to say about that. I am sure you, Dawn, I am sure you do, owning 77 restaurants. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer segment. We love doing these because, well, what you heard from Dawn was what you hear from all these folks. I I just want to be my own boss. I want to take destiny in my own hands. And if you remember Bernie Marcus, his mother, she had that arthritis. She couldn't move. As he said, my father just wasn't a very good provider. Sounded exactly like Don's circumstance. Lived in Newark, New Jersey, in a tough neighborhood. And yet at 50, started Home Depot. And that is the American dream. And that's why we love doing this American Dreamer series. This is, again, Lee Habib. This is our American story, the story of Don LaFrieda. And her remarkable rise to own 77 restaurants in this great country. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories. Our American Dreamer series continues with Don LaFrieda. And Don, I wanted to just backtrack a second during the break. We were just commenting about working early, starting work at a young age. And I actually think it was an advantage for you that you started young. And I don't know that any of this would have been possible had you not started working at a young age and not had to face tough circumstances. Talk a little bit about how that might have been an opportunity for you while other people might have seen it as bad luck. Well, you know, I knew I didn't have some of the options that other people had. And so, as I said to you earlier, I knew I was going to have to work. So if I wanted a car, I was going to have to work to get the car. If I wanted new clothing, if I wanted to go out to eat, anything I really wanted at that age, I had to work for. I had to work really starting much younger than 16 just to get some of the things that I might have personally wanted. So going out and getting a job was very empowering for me. I was finally in control of really my own money, my own destiny, what I could have, what I couldn't have, instead of someone always saying, well, we can't afford that. Or, you know, living in a household with a a parent that doesn't work and only one parent, you know, providing for three children, it was very rough times. And, you know, we all survived. And I know people have harder luck stories than I do. But, I started, as I said, working at the age of 10 and 11 to make money to buy a new dress for Easter. And so what I learned is money could buy me things. It could buy me control of my life. It could let me be in charge of where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go was to the top. And I had hoped to go to college, and that was my wish, and I started out there, and I didn't quite make it. So I knew I just had to work extra hard to to have the things I wanted to have in life and to have a career. And we learn so often that the entrepreneurs that we've been talking to, so many of them either drop out of college, don't ever get to college. Uh, we, when we did Steve Jobs for the hour, his speech at Stanford was about him dropping out at Reed College, which he right. did. And then he dropped back in and took a calligraphy course, but only just auditing it. And that calligraphy course set in motion a way of thinking about space and art and beauty And he was advising these kids, look, God bless that you went to Stanford, but lots of great things happen without college. And let's talk about the flip side of this, Dawn, work and young people. Uh, You hire a lot of young people. We're going to continue with your story, but you hire a lot of young people. Talk about the work ethic now and what you're bumping up against as you go to hire people. What's the pool of workers now today like? What was oh it like gosh. 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. It's it's just worlds different. So, And, and I'm going to tell you, I'm the mother of uh, 13-year-old twin sons, and, and I want to give them everything that I didn't have. But in thinking that, I also have to think about what we're faced with today, and, and it's my generation that it has caused what I think is some of the problem within the workforce because times are a little different. We want to give our kids better. We don't necessarily make them rush out and get a job at 16. We buy them cars. We buy them cell phones. uh, We want them to be in sports. We want them to be focusing on their homework. Well, there's really not a lot of time to go get a job. Well, for me, I didn't have a choice. I had to get a job. And I think that's part of the problem today. A, there's not enough workforce. But also, when I look back to when I bought my first restaurant, the competition was very different. I mean, there was Denny's. There were maybe a couple of other restaurants. Now there's 50 in a two- or three-mile radius, all begging for the same customer and the same employee. 
we all need to staff our restaurants and we all need customers, but all of it gets a little piece of your pie. So here's what happens. When I was a server, I wouldn't even dream of calling in sick and definitely not no call, no show. Well, today, well, you know, I want to go to a concert or, you know, I'm going to go away for the weekend. I'll just not show up because I can get a job across the street with no problem because everybody's hiring. And I think that's a large part of the problem. Because you you don't you don't have the longevity. You don't you, you know you can get a job anywhere, so I don't think you're as dedicated. Yep. Yep. I think that's a huge 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 problem today in addition to kids don't have to work as hard. And so when we're building in neighborhoods that are more up and coming and prominent the kids aren't having to work. Yeah, you know, when I was young, and I hate doing the the back-in-the-day stuff because we all sound so old and mean that way, but I do think there's something here. You know, I just remember all the kids I knew. If we went to do something, we weren't allowed to quit. I mean, I couldn't go back to my dad when I was working at Roy Rogers, my first job, and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I couldn't say those words to him. They wouldn't have been greeted with kindness I would have had severe consequences, and I couldn't think of not working for a job for at least a year, given it the old college try, and I better have found a different job before I talked to Dad about that job. Well, and you know what the hard part about that is for employers is we, we invest money in your training. Yep. And it becomes very costly. And I have a friend of mine who runs a company, and, he, and this was a few years back before things got really bad. He says, you know, I was interviewing someone for a job, and it was more like they were in, interviewing me. Uh, how many days off do I get? How many sick days do I get? How many times a year do I get a review? When do I get my raises? How many times can I call in sick? You know, I mean, it's like you're being interviewed instead of interviewing the employee. And I don't know if it's just kind of where we've evolved as a society. But I do think things need to change a little to be more balanced. And I think it's really good for kids to work. I think it gives them a sense of accomplishment. It gives them a purpose, something to look forward to, something to dream about. You know, I I always want to give things to my children, but I remember what it was like growing up to be dreaming of getting a bicycle or, you know, a car or even my first restaurant. And when you don't have those kind of dreams, I think you're missing out because you're not building on that. Yeah, it's so true. And we, we've spent some time on that Stanford study where they gave kids rewards, bigger rewards for certain delayed gratification, even bigger rewards. And it's turning out on a longitudinal study that the single most important characteristic for success is the ability to delay gratification. And that's the only way a dream can ever come true, Don, is if you, you stick at it. And you stay at it. And by the way, I hate blaming the kids for this kind of stuff because in the end, it's the adults that created this mess, not the kids. you know, it it, it is. And again, I wouldn't have been in the situation I was in had I not been forced to by my circumstances. I had to work. You had no choice. I had no choice. And and you know what? I'm grateful for every moment of it. I don't regret it. It put me on my journey. And um, I've had the most wonderful life and career with Denny's. You know, there's this one, there's a note here, and we have a bunch of quotes from you, and I know nothing makes people cringe in hearing their own quotes, but you, from one particular story about you, you said, I knew from a very young age that I would be self-employed. As a young girl, I recall sitting with my mother and saying to her, one day, I'm going to own my own company and make a lot of money. And she said to me, of course you are. 
Talk about that positive reinforcement of your mom. Some moms would have said, there's no way that's going to happen, sweetheart. Well, you know, I can't even begin to tell you how powerful that is. My mom's given me two very powerful things, and that is one of them. And because I thought my whole life, well, every time I felt the stumbling block, I didn't let it get me down. Of course I'm going to own my own company. Of course I'm going to be successful. I mean, I just I just believed that if my mom believed in me, you know, of course you're going to do that. My mom didn't say, well, you know, don't set your dreams too big or don't aim too high. She just said, of course you are. So all along my path, I always thought, well, of course I am. Yep. I and, always thought positive about it. And those words, and we always tell people who are listening, your words matter to the people you're telling them to. We did an hour on Vince Lombardi, and we had Jerry Kramer. We had a clip from Jerry Kramer, the great All-American and All-Pro guard. And, and Lombardi was tough on Kramer. And Kramer was wondering whether he had it in him to be a pro. But he said, but one day, Coach came in the locker room, and he said, Kramer, you know why I'm so hard on you? Because you're going to be the best damn player of all time. You've got it in you. And he said, from that day forward, from that day forward, I was a changed man. And by the way, we heard this from him, Don, like 30 years after that incident. But he said it was the turning point in his life that someone believed in him that much. Well, I think, I think, I think we all have something like that. And as I mentioned to you, I have a, a second thing my mother did with me, and it is what propelled me, I think, to, to really go forward. And I, when I was buying my first restaurant, I was 23 years old, and I was a little nervous. And I thought, wow, man, there's, there's 30 people depending upon me for a job. What if, you know, what if I can't do it? What if I fail? What if, what if something goes wrong? And my mom looked at me and she says, so you start over at 26. (laughs) And I thought to myself, yeah, if I can't do it, I just start over and I keep trying. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. And and bless her heart for doing that for you, Don. And when we come back, we're going to pick up where we left off on growing this business. Because my goodness, getting those new restaurants, what a challenge for you. When we come back, the story of Don LaFrieda and the American Dreamer series that we love doing here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and we're talking with Don LaFrieda. It's our American Dreamers segment, and let's talk a little bit more about one thing that happened when you were young that mattered as you got older. While still working at Denny's, Don, you took a second job selling accounting software and learned about computers and running a business. And and so now you walk into this world of now having to manage four new stores, the ups, the downs, keeping a certain level of workforce in place dealing with the rainy days, dealing with the surfeit of those great times and tucking some away. What part did knowing about accounting and bumping up against that accounting software play in your development? Oh, it's such a huge part. Um, Well, first off, I learned about computers. And when I was going to school, they didn't teach us that. So I got that background. But I learned about how to run a small business 
when you work for a small company, you wear a lot of different hats. So I got to understand payroll, accounts payable, scheduling, billing, sales, um, a lot of different things, even just how to handle an influx of incoming mail, just a whole wide variety of um, office skills that I never had working in a restaurant. And, And I learned how to develop spreadsheets which became instrumental in me doing forecasting and budgeting and um, helping me to accomplish a lot more in a shorter amount of time because I was working in a restaurant. I was doing all the accounting for our company. So there was, there was a lot to do, and I felt very ready for it, having spent the time working in that accounting firm. And the accounting firm, or the, the uh, small software firm that I worked for, they sold accounting software to CPAs and lawyers. So when you when you have to learn the software, you're learning about debits and credits and where things get posted and profit and loss statements. And I also was, you know, learning about legal software for lawyers. So I got to just learn a ton of things that I think gave me an advantage over um, other other franchisees or small business owners who, who maybe didn't have that background. Yeah, and I always pity the person who doesn't understand cash flow, too. And I'm Lebanese, so it's sort of drilled into our heads from birth. Um, we're trading people, Lebanese people, and so we know what cash flow means. We heard about it as kids, always saving enough for a rainy day, even more, um, and that cash is king in a business because if you run out of it, boy, you're going to pay hard for it. Cash is king, and you know, when you buy your business, um, you get your money, you buy your restaurant, well, they don't tell you when you're 23 that, well, there's uh, deposits on every electric account you have and every water account and every gas account and every sales tax account. And there's things that you don't anticipate. Yep. That you think, oh, I'm buying my restaurant and I'm paying this for it. Then you walk in the door and you need to come up with an extra $100,000 or whatever the magic number is for all the deposits. And you go, oh, my gosh, take a deep breath. What am I going to do next? You bet. And so now you've got the stores in West Texas. How do you go from there and learning all the things you did in that really almost a battlefield? Because, And not that Midland's a battlefield, but just the ups and downs we were talking about. Uh, What were the next steps to getting to where you are today? How did you do that, Dawn? So I had had a business partner back then, and um, we were living in West Texas, and I was incredibly homesick. And the next biggest city to where I was living, I was living outside of Midland in a town called San Angelo because it had a lake and I missed the beach. And uh, San Antonio was the next biggest city, and so I finally convinced Denny's to sell us a store in, uh, in San Antonio, bought one store there, ended up uh, converting a couple more. So it, oh, I had maybe eight or so at the time. I ended up very soon after there, buying out my business partner, and then I just went on a development craze and decided that I wanted to buy out other franchisees. I wanted to look at opportunities within Denny's. I wanted to build from the ground up. I wanted to move into some other markets. I left no stone unturned. I just had a real hunger for growth, and I think I'd had it when I was with my prior business partner, but, you know... When two people have to make a decision and one is a bigger risk taker than the other, 
um, you're not always aligned. And I always wanted to grow and develop, I think, at a much deeper level than she did. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when we were doing Bernie Marcus's story. Bernie actually admitted that he sometimes wanted to grow too fast. And then if it hadn't been for Arthur, his, his gas pedal was always all the way down. And so he said, thank goodness Arthur periodically slowed me down. In this case, though, it sounds like it, you were really getting held back. Arthur didn't hold Bernie well, back. Well, I, I, I was being held back because, you know, people have different egos and different, um, different things that are important to them at different times in their life. And I, I was just ready to develop and, and, and to grow. And I, I didn't have a specific number in mind, but I just knew I wanted to develop more restaurants. And I made mistakes along the way. I'm not going to say I didn't. And there's things that you have no control over that you don't foresee in the economy, a 9-11, a financial crisis, a, a market that struggles. I mean, there's things that happen, and you, you're not always prepped for it. But, again, I was, you know, the captain of my own destiny, and so whatever I laid out for myself, I was going to fix if I created a problem. And I think in the end it, it made me stronger because when I did get myself into a pickle in a market, I said, how am I going to get myself out? Well, I'm going to upgrade my stores. I'm going to buy more stores. I'm going to close these stores. I'm, you know, I, I would set out a strategy for how I was going to tackle whatever situation came my way. And by the way, it was interesting earlier you had said you convinced Denny's. I did. Uh, and and uh, it sounded to me like you were not just going to convince them, you were going to just wear them down. Well, uh, that's, yeah, so I would call frequently, um, frequently, please sell us a store in San Antonio. And, and I got no for a long time, and they finally caved in, and, and we got to buy one. And this, this one in particular, particular store I had wanted, and they wouldn't sell it, and they wouldn't sell it. But 25 years later, Lee, they sold it to me. So I waited 25 <laughs> years for that store, but I finally got it. Well, that's perseverance, Dawn. And, and by the way, we know that that's one of the major attributes to being an entrepreneur or to being really good at anything. You just got to stick to it. It doesn't come overnight. And talk about just a little bit here, and we're going to come back on the other side and talk about this too. Uh, I often think that sometimes the wage gap between men and women yeah, there's sexism, there's no doubt, and it's, it's rampant. But I also think that the women I've met, who, when they come to me and say, well, how do I go get a, way, or a raise? And I go, you got to go fight for one. And they go, no, I don't, I don't I, you know, I'm just not comfortable doing that. And then, of course, the, the, the male boss, well, he's never going to lean down and give that woman the raise. And do you think there, that a part of the wage gap has to do with women not being trained from the ground up. And this is sexist, too. I mean, the, the, you know, human beings are taught to fight for things, and we're teaching our boys to fight, but we're not teaching our girls to fight for a raise. Do you find that happens as a boss? Uh, no, but I'm in a different situation because I am a female, and I pay all my people in my company based upon performance, experience, job code. So we don't discriminate between gender. Right. But we're in a in the hospitality industry, which is uh, it's not like being an executive or being in higher management where you're competing with men. I mean we have we actually have a higher percentage of women employees by a few percent than we do men, but we pay them fairly based upon what market they're working in, uh, what volume of restaurant they're managing, you know, various criteria. So we don't, like I said, discriminate between male and female. However, I have several friends who 
have come to me over the years that when they talk to me about their careers and what they're making, I have coached them and said, you know, unless you go in and say this is unacceptable. Now, I don't know what their male counterparts are making, but I know as a female what they were being paid was yep. below what, what they should have. And and I can tell you quite honestly, uh, one in particular p- person I coached got a $10,000 raise immediately and then went on to propel higher. Well, and that's great that you did that. And I think we all need to coach everyone that, you know, you just got to fight for what you believe in. And it doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what, what sexual orientation you are. Fight. Fight. And you'll have a much better chance of getting what you want. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories, our American Dreamer series with Don LaFrieda. More after these messages. our American stories. We love asking people what their favorite music was, especially when they were young. And thus we come in with Barry Manilow, somebody that Don loved. And it looks like you did make it, Don. But then again, something tells me at 77 restaurants, you're not finished. Well, no, and it's it's already 78, so um, definitely not finished, even though you just outed me as a fan which I totally am. So thank you for that song, because I love him, and I've gotten to meet him twice, and it's been, um, it was really great to get to meet somebody that you enjoyed so much growing up. That is terrific. And let's talk about that. You're, you're, You're at 78 restaurants and going strong. What's your biggest problem uh, as it relates to running your business now, and maybe even two? Uh, hands down, staffing. Finding enough employees. The, I've passed on restaurants because I couldn't find enough help. And the last thing you want to do is build a restaurant and not be able to give great service. And I think that is my single biggest challenge today. I mean, we have a lot of other issues that are out there. Um, there's things we have control of and things we don't have control of. And this is just something that over the course of the last 10 years has just gotten horrific to deal with. And what are the principal problems within that? Could you break some of that down, Well, I think as we discussed earlier, everybody is hiring. Right. And I also think there's a fair amount of the population that doesn't have to work that when we were growing up, we were working at 16, 17, 18, 20, 22. There's a whole segment of kids, young adults, going to college, not having to work. Um, there's a lot of factors, and there are a lot more jobs. And so, so what, do you, what do you do about that, Don? I mean, and, and what do you do to retain the people that you currently have? Well, that, that's really the key, but even, even when you do your best, to retain them, that doesn't always that doesn't always work because people have different agendas. There's a lot of people that just want to earn a paycheck for a short amount of time to, oh, maybe get their down payment on their apartment and move on. I don't know. There's not the longevity that I saw growing up. There's not the commitment to your employer, to your job, to your customer. 
so for instance and and I don't want to generalize or say that everybody is like this but you know we have more drugs in society than we had before and I will call in people I'll interview them I will say, you know, can you pass a background check? Can you pass a drug test? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So we hire them because we need bodies. We need to get people in training. And then many, many, many times they fail the drug test. So I think that's something that has plagued uh, our industry. Yep. For a long time. And by the way, Dawn, it's not just your industry. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff put out a report two years ago that said 75% of American males don't qualify to enter the military because of felonies, an inability to simply pass the basic physical and or test, and drug tests. So it's not just you that's facing that particular problem, particularly with males, but they even said that it was a growing factor with the females too. Yeah, oh, it's a, pro- it's a problem, and I, I believe that dilutes the workforce for us. I think every new building on every new corner dilutes the workforce. I think kids that don't have to work, um, and, and I'm happy for them, uh, dilutes the workforce. It, it doesn't leave us a lot to choose from. And in in the olden days, huh, back when I was young, you had to, I had to wait in line six months for my job at Denny's. Today you run an ad, and you you might get somebody that says they'll come in for an interview, and you you got to hope that they show because a lot of times – They'll schedule an interview and not even show. Yeah, that's not a good way to, 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 to make an impression on your future boss. Well, Dawn. you know, it's not. But again, they know that tomorrow there's a help wanted sign on every corner. It's so, it's so true. How many people do you employ right now, Close Dawn? to 3,000. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. It's a lot. And in, the, and in the restaurant industry, it has high turnover with servers and cooks. And so we really end up turning about 7,500 in a year. Oh, just keeping track of that has got to be something. It's a lot. I'm, I'm so grateful I have wonderful people to help me do all that. And when, what you know, you... When, you, when you collect them along the way, a few each year, <laughs> yep. you know, you kind of pace yourself and, and you grow into it. That's so true. And well, what do you do for your own work-life balance, Don? What do you and your partner do? And uh, just talk to us a bit about that. Uh you know, our big thing is dining out, traveling, theater, concerts, um, and attending an awful lot of basketball games. Good for you. That, that, that comes with 13-year-old twin boys. Now, you're, we, we did a special on Tim Duncan's retirement. Yeah. Because what a remarkable human being. Right. And yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. Uh, my kids were just recently at a birthday party, and uh, his children were at the same party, and uh, he was shooting free throws with my kids. They thought, you know, they'd gone to heaven. Well, yeah, I, I would have gone to heaven, too. That would be a dream of mine. Next time there's a ch- shot at that, Dawn, give us a buzz. I'll be in San Antonio in a New York minute. I was conceived in San Antonio at Lackland wow. Air Force Base, wow. and I was born at Sampson Air Force Base in Syracuse. So I, I, mean, I tracked so it back. Been around. Yeah, been I, around. I figured it out. Well, I think Tim Duncan is just a phenomenal athlete, a phenomenal human being, gives back to the community, has the right spirit about the sport, about community, about just everything. He's a, a great individual. Well, and I love the way he retired. He didn't have one of these Kobe Bryant, you know, and this is no slam on Kobe. I love Kobe, too. Everyone's different. But he just wrote a little note saying, I'm not playing anymore. And they had to, like, almost pull him into, like, just a, a goodbye dinner. 
um, because he just he's just such a humble guy, the way he played and you know the way he lives. It's not about Timmy Duncan. No, he's very humble and he always gives credit to others and lets, lets everybody be part of the game, even yeah. if he can make the shot. You bet. And, and Don, I had to tell you a quick story because I was doing a, a, some poll and dial testing uh, for, uh, for Frank Luntz, who was poll and dial testing minimum wage and the, the minimum wage issue, which I'll ask you about in a second. Um, but I said, look, I, I said, Frank, let me just tell a story to this group of folks. And it was half Republican, half Democrat. And all I did was come in and tell a very simple story. I told your story. And I said that a minimum wage job is an entry-level job to a future and a life mm-hmm. where you learn about work and you learn about the dignity of work. And then pretty soon you can save enough money to get a, uh, get a store of your own and then maybe get a couple more. And this is the story of franchising in America, Don. It's amazing that 20% of the American workforce works under this this idea called franchising. And by the way, you've made a full bet on Denny's. Most people diversify their portfolio as they start to grow, but you said no. I'm I'm a Denny's that's I'm right. a Denny's girl. That's that. Talk yeah. about that. Talk about this franchising world and the minimum wage if you don't mind. Absolutely. So, uh, I I do get offers to um to diversify pr- probably every day. Every restaurant concept, uh, any kind of franchising opportunity out there, but I've been very successful with Denny's. I have a fleet of restaurants that I understand the brand inside and out. I know how to troubleshoot the problems. I, I, you know, I know it and I understand it and I love it. And I have a lot of friends I've known who who they've done other concepts, and it, it detracts from what they have that is really making them live well. Yeah. There, there are some that do really great in other concepts, but I just never wanted to take my focus off Denny's. I just thought, you know what, I'm set, I'm set up to grow. My team knows Denny's. We can just take this and we can go. And, and people often ask me also, well, why don't you start your own restaurant? Why don't you do your own concept? You could, you know, wouldn't have to pay all those royalties and advertising fees. And I said, yeah, you know, you're right about that, but maybe I'd only have 10 restaurants because I'd have to be thinking about the decor and the sign and the menu and the recipes and the uniforms and what's my building going to look like and architects. And, you know, with franchising, you can just develop at a faster pace because a lot of that's done for you in the fees that you pay. And, And you get a proven concept. If I hang the name Dawn's up, who knows how many people will come? There's 97% brand awareness of a Denny sign, and and I think that's powerful. And um, we serve everybody, and and I like that. I, er, anybody can go to Denny's. It's not you. You can be rich. You can be poor. There's something there for everybody, and I like that about my brand. Yep, it's so true. And then you get to focus on operations and execution, and do what you know best. And these big national branders are are coming in there, and they have the leverage to do what they do. And it's been such a terrific model. I think it's created more wealth for the ordinary American. I think, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've been happy having one brand. And, you know, I, I sometimes I say, well, how many restaurants does one girl need? And, well, as many as, you know, I can possibly get. <laughs> but not at a cost of your quality of life. And do you want to go learn something new? Do you want to take time away from your existing operation to go pay attention to another brand? And I just didn't want to do that. Well, you and your partner, it sounds like, have a great life. And my goodness, you don't want to miss a Spurs game because you have another brand. Now, that would be the end for me. 
Dawn. Right, or a Barry Manilow concert. Or a Barry Manilow concert. Well, Dawn, thanks so much for joining us for the hour. Dawn LaFrida, a part of our American Dreamers story, started with nothing as a young kid, started working at the age of 10, and now owns 77 Denny's restaurants and employs 3,000 people. Thanks so much, Dawn, for joining us. Great to be here. Appreciate the hour you gave me. You betcha. And you can hear all of what we do at Our American Network. That's ouramericannetwork.org.